0: Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church.
1: Based on human anatomy, we talked about the heart of the sovereignty of God because that's what the passage is about. The idea of God's sovereignty was introduced at the end of Romans 8. Those who He foreknows, He glorifies. All things work together for good for Christians, those who love God, those who are called according to His purposes. Everything happens for a reason. There's no such thing as an accident in the universe. God causes all things to work together for good to conform us to the image of his son.
0: I can see the promised land Though there's pain within the plan There is victory in the end Your love is my battle cry The answer for all my
1: life
0: Every dragon will fall The mountains Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so grateful that you've joined us today for the broadcast, and as we always do, we would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles if you can. On today's broadcast, Pastor Keith continues his study in the Book of Romans with his series of messages entitled, The Anatomy of God's Sovereignty. So if you have your Bibles, turn with us again to the Book of Romans, Chapter 9. Now here's Pastor Keith with today's study.
1: Father, we thank you for your word, your whole Bible, Lord, not just the chunks that we prefer, not just the pieces that we enjoy, but the ones that challenge us to think beyond our preferences, to think beyond uh, what we may have heard uh, on the radio or on the website, Father, or whatever, but, but what is in your word. Help us to embrace that so that we may know you better, that we may serve you better, that we may understand and make sense of our existence according to the word of god and that we may share the whole gospel with the whole world we pray this in jesus amen you know there's the old saying what we don't know can hurt us and ignorance is not bliss and i think today that is true when you look at the church worldwide when you look at the church in the west and particularly in the ideas it's embraced one of the ideas that's coming along it goes through peaks and valleys is a heresy called open theism most of you probably haven't heard about it. Some of you may have. What is open theism? You've heard of virtual reality. Well, open theism is virtual atheism, essentially. It's a form of atheism that makes God into man. It strips him of his divine attributes, of his deity, and makes him something less than it is. It robs him of his sovereignty. It makes God man. It's, and it's gone from the fringe. It was popularized by a guy named uh, Greg Boyd at Bethel College and University in Minneapolis. He wrote a book called uh, The God of the Possible. And uh, open theism pretty much has the following characteristics. And, you know, these are the kind of things where the average Christian might go, sounds good to me, without thinking about what the Bible says. The first attribute of open theism is God's greatest attribute is love. Well, all of his attributes are great, and they're all in balance. And so God's love so overshadows his other characteristics, he could never allow or condone suffering. Unless, you know, so. Secondly, man has libertarian free will. God's, man's will has not been affected by the fall to the point that he's spiritually dead, and he can't make the choice to follow God. I know, despite what Ephesians says, right? Man, uh, God respects man's freedom of choice and would do nothing to infringe upon it. The third tendency of uh, open theism is that God does not have an exhaustive knowledge of the future. Uh, He cannot know certain future events because they haven't taken place yet. And because man's free will is such that he can never know for sure what man's going to do next. And so uh, the fourth tendency of open theism is that God is a risk taker. He's kind of you know, throwing the dice and see what's going to happen next. He does not know the end from the beginning, as Isaiah or Paul would su- suggest. Uh, the fourth tenet of open theism is that God learns. Because God cannot and does not know the future exhaustively, He has to learn and evolve as He deals with us. We, we change God. We make Him better. And so... Uh, Uh, Which goes in line with the sixth tendency of open theism, is that God is reactive. Because he is learning, God is constantly reacting to the things that we do, to the decisions that we make. And which brings us to the seventh tenet of open theism, God makes mistakes. He's not perfect. He's learning. He's reacting. He's always dealing with limited information. And so he makes errors in judgment. Which later require reevaluation. And finally, number eight, God can change his mind. God, when God realizes he's made an error in judgment, he can change his mind and try to fix the messes that he's allowed or that he himself has made. And that's why I say open theism is a form of atheism, because that God is not God. It robs God of his deity. It makes him like a man, like a highly evolved man, sort of like what the, what the Mormons are worshipping. Which brings us to last week's slide. Remember that slide about reading the Bible? Uh, Only 32% of the Christians read their Bible every day. And as you go down the list, you see really that, and these are professing Protestant evangelical Christians, that our biblical literacy is in decline. And so when somebody says something like you just heard there in the open theism realm, a lot of Christians go, oh yeah, you you know, everybody has opinions about things and there are many interpretations and so, you know... You know, yeah, no, that's, that, that's why the church worldwide and that's why Christianity is in a mess uh, because the church has lost a level of biblical literacy that helps it to understand and know God and to always remember, to always know that there's only one interpretation of Scripture. There are many applications but only one interpretation and our job as believers is to find it. And if we put a little equity, sweat equity into it, we can. Musicians rehearse, athletes train, Christians study the Bible, and they learn God's logic, God's principles. They learn theology. And theology is the study of God, the study of God's word. And when they do that, when they apply themselves and avoid becoming biblically illiterate, then they avoid heresies and belief systems like open theism. Biblical illiteracy allows us to look at some of these heresies and just go, oh, it makes sense to me. Seems right. You know, in Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man and in the end it's the way of death. We're told to follow our hearts, not our heads, not the word of God. The Bible says the one who trusts in his own heart is a fool. And, you know, we know that the heart is desperately wicked. So we need to read God's word, to understand God's thoughts after him. Because if we don't, we end up with a distorted view of God. How many of you have ever been to a fun house? Are they still called? I don't I haven't been to a fair in 100 years. But you remember you go to the fun house and you have those distortion mirrors and you know, you stand in front of it and you know you look all out of proportion. That's what happens when Christians don't read the Bible. They see an image of God that's all out of proportion and they interpret it as real. Which is why we're studying Romans. This is Paul's magnum opus on the Christian faith because Romans explains and elaborates on every key doctrine in the Bible pretty much from Genesis to Revelation. And if you understand Romans, you understand the faith, and that's why we're working systematically through the book of Romans, because Romans explains and elaborates on every principle taught from Genesis to Revelation. It tells you who you are, how you got here, why things are the way things are, and what God's expectations are, and what God is like. If I had to break, uh, if Romans were a concerto, with three it would have three movements, as most concertos do. Some do have four, so I get that. But generally, concertos have three movements. The first movement in Romans is Romans one through eight. Call it the basics, the basics of Christianity. It's all the stuff that we love to hear. You could think of it as uh, think of it as primary and secondary school. Romans nine through 11 is more like high school and college, that it's the second movement, and it's the stuff that's really hard to wrestle with. And it's some of the things that people like to skip over, but when you're preaching systematically through a passage or through a book of the Bible, you can't. And it's, it's got some tough stuff in it. Think of it as a college or university level course in Christianity. And then finally, in the third movement, you have Romans 12 through 16 which is taking all of that and putting it into practice in your daily life, presenting your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what Romans 12 through 16 is all about. Call it life after college. Call it, call it post-doctoral studies. Call it whatever you want to. But understand that you just you got to read the whole thing. you got to understand what it says. And so last week, uh, we moved into one of the more difficult passages in Romans, Romans chapter 9, verses 9-1 uh, through ten four, and we organized our discussion around an analogy loosely based on human anatomy. We talked about the heart of the sovereignty of God, because that's what the passage is about. The idea of God's sovereignty was introduced in, at the end of Romans 8, those who he foreknows, he glorifies. All things work together for good for Christians, those who love God, those who are called according to His purposes. Everything happens for a reason. There's no such thing as an accident in the universe. God causes all things to work together for good, to conform us to the image of His Son, that we might bring glory to God, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so we, kinda, that kind of puts us back on our heels a little bit. And then we move into Romans 9. And we looked at the heart of the sovereignty of God. I'm just going to do a real fast review, then we'll get back into it a little bit more. The the fact is that we're saved not by biology, not because we're descended from Israel, for not all Israel is Israel. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone, by God's sovereign grace. We looked at the head of God's sovereignty also last week. God decides and acts based upon his godhood, his right as king of the universe, his godness. We can't buy or earn our salvation. We don't merit anything. God does what God does. And so now we're preparing to head into the last two body parts or segments of, uh, of God's sovereignty and God's grace. And those are the torso of God's sovereignty, the trunk. The bulk of it is that in humanity's vain attempts to, self, to save itself are a waste. You know, a man att- attempts to make himself or herself their own God. Uh, you know, it's sort of the God of the possible. It's sort of an open theism thing. I can do what I do. I can establish my own righteousness because I'm sovereign. And then segment four is the feet of God's sovereignty that we're going to get into in a few minutes. And that basically is this, that man's feet convey him away from God, that man is bent away from God. After the fall, humanity, human beings naturally have a distaste and a dislike for God. And you see that from the fall in the garden where Adam and Eve hid themselves. Cain hid himself. You see this over and over again. So what we want to do is get into the text. And if you're here for the first time, I'll I'll do even a little bit more of an extensive review. The heart, segment one. Sovereign grace is not based upon biology. Paul begins with a discussion in Romans 9, 1 through 5 about Israel had every advantage. They were God's chosen people. They received the law. They received everything. They, they descended from an elect nation. Their ancestors experienced the glory of God. They saw the ten plagues. They saw the great miracles of deliverance. They were privileged to be, privileged to be given the law of God. God taught them how to worship. And they were the physical channel, the human channel through whom the Messiah would come. And despite these advantages, despite these genetics, most of Israel and most even Jews today are without God. They're without the Messiah. And if you look at the history of Israel, they really never had any era of any significant obedience. The majority of the people worshipped the Baals. The majority of the people turned their backs on God. Despite all these advantages, they could not earn God's salvation by keeping the law. And that moved Paul to write, or shall we say the Holy Spirit to write through the pen of the apostle Paul in Romans 9, 6 through 13, these words. Romans 9, 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children of Abraham are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. Verse 8, this means, he's explaining it to us, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Four, because this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written... Jacob I love but Esau I hated. You know, we've talked about this a lot of times when we look at the iceberg we just see the tip and if we look beneath the surface we see more, much much more. And really what we see here is that it isn't that you're born into a Christian family, that's not going to save you. It isn't who your mom or your dad was. It isn't your worth that leads to your salvation. It's God's purposes. And we see this with Jacob and Esau, we see this with we see this with Isaac and Ishmael. You, you, you see, you know, one father, but they're not all elect. They're not all children of the promise. And it's done because, as it says in verse 8, excuse me, uh, verse yeah, verse 8, that this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise. It says that in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls. And so God the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Paul really talks about the fact that God's sovereignty trumps tradition, trumps works, trumps any merit on our part. That's what grace is, God's unmerited favor, not because of righteous works that we do, but because he called us. We see that, this, and we saw this last week in Deuteronomy 7.7. 7. This is all review. In Israel's election, how did Israel become a chosen people? Through no fault of their own and through no decision of their own. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They weren't special. Where do we see that? Deuteronomy seven. 7. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. And I think I asked you last week, and I hope you did, read Ezekiel 16. And you can see that there was nothing winsome, nothing special about Israel, but God chose the most unlikely vessel, the most unlikely nation, to be the nation through whom the Messiah would come. There was nothing special about them. And if you haven't read Ezekiel 16, 1 through 21 or 24, you should. All this is done by God's sovereign grace in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. We have our own version of this in uh, Romans 5, 6, and 8. While we were still weak at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There was nothing about us. We weren't saying, Holy Spirit, come and break our hearts and open our eyes. God acted graciously towards us. And we flesh this out even further looking at John one ten through 13. We're not saved by the will of the flesh, by the will of man or by bloodlines, but by the will of God. And so we began to see, which really is hard to take, that God chooses. Now, we also talked about God's choice of us does not negate man's responsibility. You know, we looked at, we looked at uh, Acts 2. You know, this man Jesus was... Crucified according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified, he says to the people of Israel, this man through the hands of godless men. As we work through all this, we understood that, well, there is no righteousness in us apart from God. And while these things may not sit well with us, and they, our Sunday school teacher and junior high may have taught us this and may not have taught us this, and this is hard to take, it is the fact that the heart of the gospel is God's sovereign grace. We are saved by works, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. By grace, you are saved through faith, not of works. It is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. goes on to say you know, that we were created in Christ for good works that he prepared beforehand. We do not earn our salvation. So let's talk about the head of the gospel, the head of God's sovereign grace, the head of the Christian faith, the head of the sovereignty of God, and that is this, God's freedom to act is his own sovereign right? He's God, this is the Godness of God. We, we act sometimes like God is an elected official, he needs to do what we want him to do or we'll call him unfair. And that's why we have this message subtitled The Unfairness of God. Because I have heard people say, well that's just not fair. That's right, fair is that we all perish for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life. We studied that weeks ago. Paul understands our struggle, he understands humanity, he understands the way people think. And so he writes this in Romans 9, 16 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unfair? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so that so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. A lot of people wrestle with this and picking up in verse 19 through 24, Paul picks up on this. Remember what we talked about before and this is all review. Paul understands the way we think. He understands how this would hit us and really, who wrote Romans. This is a question that this is your audience participation time. Who wrote Romans? So some people say Paul and some people say the Holy Spirit. Both, right? I love it when some people say Paul, then I usually say, is that your final answer? But the bottom line is, this is God speaking to us, understanding what makes us tick. Understanding our struggles, understanding our weaknesses, understanding that we have sons and daughters, loved ones, and we'd like to think that they might be good enough or that we might be good enough at evangelism to make them saved. And so he knows that we're struggling with this kind of stuff. And in verses 19 through 24, he picks up on this. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And then he answers the question, not what the answer that we'd like. He gives us, if you will, a politically incorrect answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. We talked about this last week. I used the terminology, Paul goes full Job. And what, is I, what did I mean by that last week? In the middle of Job, you know, when you get into uh, chapters 38 through 40, through the end of 40, you know, Job is like, why is this happening to me? And his friends are coming up with all these ideas. They're making accusations against him. Job is standing on his righteousness. In the middle of it all, God addresses them from a whirlwind and says, who is this that darkens my counsel? Who is this that is speaking all this stuff? It's like he looks down over his bifocals and says, and you are? He's God. He does what he wants to do. Job never has an answer. He never gives He gives an answer to Job. I do what I do. If you know so much, where were you when I hung the moon? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did this? Where were you? And he just basically says, I am God, and my purposes." are bigger than the tip of the iceberg that you see. And you need to know that I am doing what I do. And so we have this same kind of thing going on here in Romans 9:19 9, through 24. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault if there's no injustice with God? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Think about that. Who are we to say unfair? I mean, when you read these words in the text, they're just hard to take but they say what they say and they mean what they say and so the question is how will we respond the heart of God's sovereignty is that we're not saved by anything other than his sovereign grace and the head of it is is the head that governs the heart is that we are under God he is God and he has the right to do whatever he pleases and by definition it's just and righteous and good
0: Pastor Keith Crosby on this special edition of the Grace to Live radio broadcast. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening today.
1: In the uncertainty of the COVID-19 crisis, many people within the Hillside Church community and all over Santa Clara County are in the middle of financial hardship, and we need to pray for them. And we would ask you to pray for us as well. We want to thank you for listening and supporting this ministry But it is a listener-supported ministry, and in as much as we covet your prayers, we also ask you to consider a, a financial contribution to the ongoing work of this radio broadcast. Grace to Live Radio provides encouragement to so many people in the outside world who can't make it to church, and you can be part of that ministry by supporting us financially as you support us prayerfully. This is Keith Crosby, and I want to thank you for your prayers and your encouragement.
0: With the current guidelines in place by our president and the local leaders here in San Jose, Hillside Church will be holding our worship service 100% online for now. So please remember our website, hillside.org. You can view our Sunday morning service there as well as to keep informed with updates on what's happening here at the church as we walk through this time together. Just click on the COVID 19 response button for updates on ministry activities, resources for your children, as well as important information from the County Health Commission. And you can also connect with us on social media, the church Facebook page, at Hillside Church San Jose, as well as our Instagram page, at Hillside San Jose. Don't worry if you missed any of this information. You can access everything by visiting our website, hillside.org. We want to thank you so very much for spending this time with us here on the Grace to Live radio broadcast. I'm your host, Kevin Reeves, and on behalf of Pastor Keith and all of us here at Hillside Church, we want to encourage you with our prayer that the Lord will continue to richly bless you and protect you. So please keep looking up, and thanks for listening.